Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as we are thrilled to be able to bring to you all eight talks from Ripperologist Magazine's 21st birthday conference that took place at the Chamberlain Hotel in London over the weekend of the 3rd and 4th of September 2016. The following presentation is David Thompson speaking on the tragic London life of P.C. Ernest Thompson. David Thompson is the great-grandson of P.C. Ernest Thompson, the constable who discovered the body of Francis Coles in Swallow Gardens while on his very first beat, and who nine years later was murdered while on duty. As with all of the series of talks from the Ripperologist Conference, a compendium of sorts featuring articles from the speakers was published in Ripperologist Magazine issue 151, and I encourage all of our listeners to obtain and refer to that issue for further reading, as well as seeing some of the images that were used in these presentations. If you do not yet receive Ripperologist Magazine, you can easily join their subscription list for free by emailing contact at ripperologist.biz. And now over to the Chamberlain Hotel and David Thompson. Big welcome to David Thompson. gentlemen, I'm very honoured to be here today, and I think I've probably got a bit of an advantage on being the last speaker of the day, because I've had lots of references and things that I've learned an enormous amount from being here over these last two days, in particular, to assist with my own, and this is my own personal journey with my great-grandfather, <coughs> Ernest Thompson. Um, Ernest came into my life really quite unexpectedly when I was in my mid-twenties, <coughs> just very shortly after, by these extraordinary coincidences, um, I was backpacking in Indonesia, and I got off a bus, a public bus, in a Javanese town called Bandung, and a local man stepped in front of me and said, where are you from? And I said, I'm from England. And he very proudly, this great beaming grin, said, Man United, Jack the Ripper. <laughs> his, 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 his understanding of what England was all about. And very shortly afterwards, my grandfather, also called Ernest, in his widowhood, would, would go for his Sunday meal with my parents and visiting them out in the much mismaligned county of, of Essex. Uh, I would sit with grandfather when they were clearing up and washing up and one day completely out of the blue he said my father saw Jack the Ripper well that's you know, that's quite a thing to suddenly sort of say and you sort of you sit up about it and um, so I sort of inquired more and great grandfather began to tell me the story of his father we might say of Ernest an ordinary man who extraordinary things happened to the fortune or the misfortunes of, of, of life. And my grandfather wrote to H Division, or the former station where grandfather was stationed in the 1890s, and by complete chance again... A, sorry, can you hear? I thought somebody said that you couldn't. Um, a sergeant at the force was at the time writing a history of H Division and suddenly this letter came out of the blue from the son of one of what we might say as far as his history, his star players, 
because he had just been walking his dog in, in Bow Cemetery and had come across great-grandfather's grave and we were invited up for the day and we were taken to the grave and when, I'm going to show you a picture of the grave later, I, I, I know that there are people here that have seen it. And the police force had restored it and it was very, very clearly legible, but I'll take more of the grave, of the grave later. Um, Ernest's story really can be, we might say, divided into sort of sections. His story becoming a police constable, his time as a police constable, and what really happened to his family after his very untimely death, only 10 years with, within the, in the force. Ernest was born in the village of Wareham, which is near Wells next to the sea on the Norfolk coast. And I've always liked the notion of sort of what we might say individuals. Um, his kinsmen, his kinsfolk, his kinsmen, men in particular, had always been farm labourers or fishermen. And Ernest, in 1890, sought a different life. And it must have been an extraordinary voyage, in a sense, from the quiet of the Norfolk coast to come to the metropolis and in search of another life. Now we know that, I'm just going to have to put a little bit of this on, one moment please, I think I've got the right one. No. Yeah, I've always rather liked this particular saying because in some ways it sort of summarises London for me and clearly with Richard's uh, very flattering introduction, I'm also a Blue Badge Guide and the idea of this quote from uh, Italo Calvino, the city does not tell its past but contains it like the life of the lines of a hand written in the corners of the streets. I think that's really what it sums up for me, this place, and particularly where we are today, we are so near to all the events, or many of the events that have been talked about, and not least we're effectively on my great-grandfather's beat when he became a successful uh, constable in the East End. Now I'm just going to go to this, which I've always rather liked, I don't know if you've seen this painting, the 9th of November 1888 by William Logsdale, it's in the Guildhall Gallery, the Lord Mayor's Show, and of course London at that time must have been in some ways awash with the press and speculation, fear, excitement, anticipation, whatever murder brings in us all, and it was that very night that Mary Kelly was found dead in Dorset Street, Spitalfields, believed to be, we might say, but not by some, the Ripper's final victim. And I just rather like the way that the, oh, there are all walks of life in this painting. Oops, excuse me. In, including police constables. And it's actually rather nice to think in, 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 in sort of some way that great-grandfather might almost have been there in the crowd. But he came up from Norfolk, and we know that at the very beginning he made a living in St Pancras Station as a porter. He was living in the Caledonian Road, and he then applied to the Metropolitan Police Force. Now what I sort of have to say today, this is really my personal journey with great-grandfather. What I've clearly gleaned over two days, that I'm in some pretty august company here, very knowledgeable people of their subject, 
my understanding of great-grandfather and his times and his life are what were handed to me by his own son. What I read in my 20s, it's almost like now saying, imagine a world without electricity, a world without the internet, but that's effectively where it was, so really quite limited. And the understanding of his granddaughter, Adrian, who is still alive at 85 and living, living in Nottingham. And we're really, I'm really piecing together his story because the final tragedy to me of Ernest's life was that he was erased from family history. Now we might think that this could be for, for various reasons, but more of that shortly. Coming up to London, working as a porter, living off the Caledonian Road, and then applying to the Metropolitan Police. And successfully, I'd like to put this in by Doro, an, an engraving of sort of the slums, the slums of London, and all these wonderful railway arches and lines of what this world must have been like into the eight, this city must have been like into the eight, into the 1890s, because into the East End, H Division, was where Great Grandfather was placed. Now, I actually have Great Grandfather's application forms to the police and we know sort of really quite a lot about him i mean even sort of here he is ernest thompson at 22 years of age he was five feet nine which is the general height of male thompson's rather regrettably i might like a, <laughs> another six inches but there we are um, he weighed 11, 11 stone and 7 pounds, and he had a not too manly chest of 36 and a half inches. Um, and, his, and his former uh, place of residence, uh, Cumberland Street off the Caledonian Road, and his former employee, the Midland Railroad, at St Pancras Station. Now this, um, they are really quite difficult to see, but if anyone would like to have, have a look afterwards, I can certainly show you these copies. What actually quite spooks me um, about, sorry, this next one, is the very top signature is Ernest's, which I in fact only saw for the first time two days ago. And if I were to show you my grandfather's signature, my father's signature and my own signature, they are so similar that it is just absolutely uncanny. And the more I go into this story, the closer I become to this man who I really knew absolutely nothing about. Now, this is Ernest joins the force. Now, this is dated his application, the 29th of December, 1890. Now, I'm going to make a speculation here that if you're a rookie constable, you shadow, I'd like to think you shadow an experienced constable on their beat for a number of occasions before being given your own beat and set out onto your own. Now, the first extraordinary thing that, that Ernest encountered on the very, very first beat, solo beat, in the early hours of February the 13th, 1891, he encountered in a railway arch the body of a woman. Now, I'm suspecting that many of you, if you're not 
all of you will know the identity of this woman as Frances Coles. Now, I mean, what, what I've also sort of gleaned from all this is that Whitechapel in particular, the East End, at the time, how what we might say, how lawless, or in, if we look at the opposite, how incredibly lord, perhaps for want of a better word, it was. Because it strikes me from all I read, if a police constable blew his whistle, there was a very good chance that there'd be two, three, or four colleagues somewhere within hearing distance that they would that they would come running, or so, or so it would seem, which is also sort of the mystery of the East End, and I suppose a lot of the the huge mystery of Jack the Ripper himself, the man who essentially got away. Now this is where Ernest, rather sadly, fall, begins to fall foul with what was to haunt him for the very rest of his life. I'm going to actually jump ahead to a cutting from the Newsman newspaper, which, which was published ten years hence after Ernest's own untimely death. Police Constable Thompson was probably the only man, the only constable, who ever saw the alleged Jack the Ripper. It was the last big crime of that horrible series when a woman was murdered in Chamber Street, Whitechapel. It was on Friday, February the 13th, 1891. At 2.15, Constable Thompson, passing along his patrol down a narrow thoroughfare, Chamber Street, leading out of Lehman Street, a street that loses itself in a network of rail arches. One of these arches, a thoroughfare leading through into Royal Mint Street, in the middle of this archway, Thompson came up the ghastly work of Jack the Ripper. The woman was still alive, her limbs slightly moving and her lips seemed to be vainly trying to articulate. Almost at the very moment that Thompson made the discovery, the deed must have been done. He rushed to the other end of the archway, raised an alarm and looked around him but there was no one to be seen. With a start of seconds only, Jack the Ripper had disappeared into space. As a matter of fact, Thompson actually heard Jack's steps scurrying away into the darkness as he entered the arch. And it was to haunt great-grandfather for the rest of his life that effectively what he did was follow police instruction that if a victim was found and there were signs of life, in whatever reason you assisted the victim as paramount importance. And he saw by the light of his lantern this unfortunate woman, her, her eyes flickering and her mouth moving despite profusely bleeding from, from, the, from the neck, and stayed with her. Now this is a little account um, again, after great-grandfather is, de is, is deceased, that goes into exactly the same detail as I've said before. Turning his lantern on her, he saw that she was bleeding profusely from her savagely cut throat, but her eyes were open and she was still alive. At that moment, Thompson followed precisely the revised and strict standing orders on procedure in the case of discovering a body. He remained with the body. 
He was, however, criticized for not having given chase along Royal Mint Street and reproached himself for the remainder of his life for not having raced away to arrest Jack the Ripper. Now, of course, we can only speculate because I think the interesting thing about this is that, as one might imagine, the press were immediately on to it. And this is a cracking good story. And with it, within the editions of the next day's papers, the press are already labeling this crime as a murder, or albeit the woman still alive, of the so-called Jack the Ripper murder. Um, and this, this is, in fact, a press uh, illustration at the time of great-grandfather. Let me just go a little further. And this rather gruesome picture is the woman herself, Frances Coles, from her mortuary photograph. And we're going on here that PC Ernest Thompson had only joined the Metropolitan Police on December the 29th, 1890, and was on the first of his beats on the night of the 12th of February. It goes on to details that I've already ready, 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 ready told you. Um, PC Thompson blew his whistle, which soon brought constables Hyde and Hinton to the scene. And whilst Thompson remained with the dying woman, Hyde went off to fetch Dr. Oxley, and Hinton headed off to Lehman Street Police Station to raise the alarm and fetch reinforcements. Dr. Oxley, I'll assume he's a police surgeon. What I will say, there may very well be people here that at some stage in what I'm saying may have other theories, may have things to add. I'm perfectly cool about that. It's my, this is my journey. And I would, but I would say it's probably prudent that we wait to the end to actually do it. So I'm assuming Oxley is a police surgeon. Um, by the time Dr. Oxley arrived at Swallow Gardens, which in fact this railway arch was called, there's actually no sense whatsoever of anything remotely like a garden there. I don't think there was then or, 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 or today. The woman was dead and all he could do was pronounce life extinct. He was soon joined at the scene by Dr. Baxter Phillips who carried out a more detailed examination and noted that the wound to the throat had evidently been caused by a soaring action. I'm probably glad that everybody's sitting down. The blade having been drawn across the throat from left to right, and then in the opposite direction, and once more from left to right. He also noted that the clothing had not been disturbed, and there were no other wounds or mutilations to the rest of the body, aside to an injury to the back of the head indicative that her attacker had thrown her to the ground forcibly. The doctor's examination completed, the body was removed to the mortuary, where the woman was identified as 25-year-old Frances Coles, who, according to an earlier report, was known to be a prostitute of the area. Now, people... 
speculate, and, or it seemed that police officers themselves began to make statements <coughs> that this indeed was a, the work of Jack the Ripper. Now, I have various things here, including, and of course, things get lost in legend and myth, and I think sort of people's understanding of things, of course, can often be exaggerated. This is a reminiscence by Detective Sergeant Leeson, who also came upon the scene, having heard great-grandfather's police whistle, and termed great-grandfather, my pal. Now, we'll, ex we'll, we'll speculate on how pally they were, but he writes again following great-grandfather's death, on a bitter night during the winter of 1890-91, I was patrolling the beach to which I had been transferred in the neighborhood of the Mint. There was not a soul to be seen when the, sti when the stillness was suddenly disturbed by the shrill of a police whistle. Police whistles were often blown improperly, but I felt certain that this was a regulation blast, and after I had made sure of the direction, I made off at top speed. The call brought me to a place called Swallow Gardens, where I came to the assistance of PC Thompson 140H Division, whom I knew well on account of our serving part of our time together as recruits on the drill ground. When I reached the spot, I found Thompson there with two night watchmen, one a plain-clothes policeman who had been patrolling the district. About midway in the arch lay a woman with her head nearly severed from her body. She was still alive, but so large was the wound in her throat that articulation was impossible. And I think we must sort of perhaps smile a little at this, What's up? I asked. And I, I'm afraid I can't for a moment imagine great-grandfather saying this. Murder, said my colleague in a hoarse voice, adding in a whisper, a Jack the Ripper job. Well, we can only speculate, and many of you may very well know that a sailor, a ship's fireman called Thomas Sadler, was in, was in fact taken into custody as chief suspect. And his story goes, as indeed it might ver ver very well, that he claimed that he had in fact, what we might say, taken business to Francis Cole that, that very night. In a statement, I am a married man and this will part me and my wife. You know what sailors are. I used her for my purpose, for I have known Francis for some years. I admit I was with her, but I have a clean bill of health and can account for my time. I have not disguised myself in any way, and if you could not find me, the detectives in London are no good. Um, eventually, he, it's, this is a quote from the Daily Telegraph, which says that Sadler was actually shown to a, a, a Joseph Lawend. Now this is where my knowledge, I will admit, becomes slightly shallow, who had seen the Ripper victim, Catherine Eddowes, talking to a man outside Mitre Square. 
So in many, in, in, before her own murder. So in many ways, he claimed himself that he had most likely seen Jack the Ripper himself. Now, Laurent failed to identify Sadler as the same man. And indeed, the case began to collapse. And ultimately, he was, he, he was freed with all charges or all possible charges dismissed. As it says here, on Tuesday the 3rd of March 1891, the Thames Police Court, all charges against Sadler were dismissed and cheered by a sizable crowd. Sadler left the court in a cab, an innocent man. So I think we must speculate, but great-grandfather goes on in his life as a regular constable. Now just a few little uh, almost contemporary shots. This is the street leading in to the so-called rail arch. The rail arch itself, this is 1961. It became a car workshop and a relatively contemporary photograph of it the ring in the floor being a supposed suggestion of where the body was found. But I think, you see, here we are, we've got a press engraving here of how this ignited the public imagination. Um, Frances Coles herself and the gentleman arrested as the chief suspect and vast crowds gathering to have a look entirely on the speculation. I mean, as we probably all know, there were a significant number of murders in the East End of London, and for many people, a no-go area. But the very fact of the press speculation on the Ripper connection drew huge public uh, interest. Let me just go on one here. Just Lovely. Now, let's have a little consideration of grandfather's beat. A very typical... St I mean, I imagine that life as an East End constable on a regular beat... I mean, I'm sort of hesitant, in a sense, to say dull, but I suspect was very formulaic, and as we've already considered this weekend, an enormous amount of what was dealt with, particularly towards weekends, lawlessness through drunkenness but the same beat and very near to here because this great church that is literally if we go out of the hotel turn across to the left it's in the very next street which we know he checked nightly on his beat and the the magistrate's court of the area a, a passageway that he equally would have walked down now, actually, we'll go back a little bit. We won't quite go to that yet. Right, so life continues, and we have 10 years, effectively, of duty here when I know little of him. Somewhere in that 10 years, he met Ellen, a young woman from Bocking near Braintree in Essex, simply styled in service. So we'll imagine she's working at, at, at some not notable home. She's a maid, a scullery maid or something. They set up home together, they marry, and they have four children. 
Uh, we hope, or I hope, it's my hope for great-grandfather, that he found some form of solace and happiness in his marriage and his children. And of course, as a police constable, what he'd have that many people wouldn't have in the East End, a regular income. So he effectively could provide for his family. Now, then we go on to the next, what we might say, extraordinary occurrence to this man. And I, what I'm really going to read from you, for you, are extracts from a coroner's report. Because in the early hours of the 1st of December 1900, Ernest himself loses his life whilst on his beat. Um, this is from the coroner's report on my uh, on great grandfather. On Monday at the London Hospital, Mr. Baxter opened the inquest on the body of Ernest Thompson, aged 32, lately residing at 1 Princes Street, Commercial Road, who was stabbed to death in Whitechapel early on December the 1st. The court was crowded throughout the hearing. For quite an hour before the commencement of the proceedings, large crowds gathered outside the main entrance to the court, and when the accused, Barnett Abrahams, a Jewish cigar maker in custody on a charge of murdering the deceased, drove up in charge of two warders, he was loudly hooted and hissed. Um, it's very interesting that the very first witness was a certain Albert Thompson, who was Ernest's brother, who was some 10 years younger than Ernest and also followed him up from Norfolk, one would assume, on the advice or uh, the example of his older brother. And I would suspect security of, of tenure and work had an enormous amount to do it. Now, Albert is actually one of my next projects to trace Albert. I get his granddaughter has in fact only died this, this very year and I and my cousin who were working on this were only one month too late, rather sadly, to get to her to see if she had any information. He disappears off, off the city. And so we might speculate that he emigrated. I, I, I simply don't know. Um, but we go forward here, and this is really what happened to great-grandfather. Great William Butcher, at the time of the occurrence in charge of a coffee stall at the corner of Church Lane, saw the deceased on his beat a few minutes before the stall was opened. He saw the accused, Abrahams, about one o'clock. Abrahams came to the stall with two women and ordered some coffee, eggs, and bread and butter for them. He had nothing. After they had had their refreshments, they went about six feet away towards Allgate. Prior to that time, there had been no noise, but then he heard Abrahams laughing and singing. The deceased came up from the direction of Union Street towards the stall and ordered the accused away. Abrahams said, what do you want me for? And the deceased replied, moved on. Now I have read elsewhere that great-grandfather had met this man elsewhere on his beat that evening and had asked him to move, to move on. Um, we then get 
the witness report of a constable, Albert Pims, who spoke after answering a police whistle and finding the deceased great-grandfather kneeling on the accused and holding him. Pims saw blood pouring out from the left side of the deceased's neck. He was then unconscious. The coroner, bracket surprised, said, and he was still holding the prisoner. Yes, replied Pims. His hold was so tight that it took another constable and myself some seconds before we could release it. We drove him to the London hospital, but he died before getting there. The witness said that the deceased had his truncheon in its usual place, i.e. it was in his holster. It had not been removed, because Abrahams himself later claimed police, brutal police brutality. Um, so I speculate from what I've understood that great-grandfather encountered Barnett Abrahams on his beat. There was some dialogue between them. They encountered again the coffee stall and what became simply as labeled in the press a fracas. He intervened again and asked him to move on. And I get here again an, an, a, another witness statement from Constable Timms, who also arrived. There are conflicting reports. I've read reports that great-grandfather did not blow his police whistle, and other reports that he did, and people came running. And indeed, a doctor's report with the coroner asking, with such a serious wound as he uh, took, would he still be able to blow a whistle? And, the, and the, the, the physician saying for up to two minutes, it was likely that he would be able to do that. But when, but when we, we really sort of understand what happened to him, I mean, it is sort of pretty grim, a chance occurrence. I think we really must take it. And um, Constable Timms then arrived and assisted in getting Thompson's hands free from Abraham's coat. The coroner, what were you doing? The constable, I got the prisoner to his feet, and as he was still very violent, I drew my truncheon. I dealt him a heavy blow to the left shoulder. Another constable at the same time struck him in the face with his fist. We then took him to Lehman Street Police Station. There was no one near Thompson and Abrahams when the witness first saw them struggling. I mean, effectively, what we're really looking at, and this was the charge for Abrahams at seven o'clock the following morning, an inspector Duval encountered him and said, after, after ensuring that he understood English, he was formally charged with killing the deceased by stabbing him with a knife whilst in the execution of his duty. The witness, and this is the witness here, this is coroner's speak, was the inspector, showed him the knife, remarking, with this knife, and the accused nodded and said, then I am charged with maliciously killing. And the witness replied, you are charged with feloniously killing. After a pause, the accused said, it is possible but I don't remember anything about it. I had no cause to do injury to anyone. But a Sergeant Wensley, 
who encountered Abrahams shortly afterwards said of Abrahams, he said, I did do it. It was an unlucky minute for me. He paused, then added, may his soul rest in peace. And after a further pause added, I regret it, but it cannot be helped. So I think what we're saying is the misfortune of great-grandfather to intervene into some form of dialogue, as the press would say, for Rackus and an incidental, uh, spontaneous action on the behalf of the accused of lashing out with a penknife and stabbing him in deeply into the neck, which actually severed a jugular artery. Uh, effectively, the deed was, was, was then done. Abrahams was charged and found guilty of manslaughter. Now, we get to the next very extraordinary piece, Ernest's funeral. And I'm reading some form of a, a, a description of the time. The funeral of PC Constable Ernest Thompson, who was murdered in Commercial Road during the early hours of Saturday last, took place yesterday at Bow Cemetery in the presence of many thousands of persons. The ceremony was of a most impressive and imposing character. The dead constable, who met death whilst in the execution of his duty, was followed to his last resting place by 3,500 of his comrades, representing every police division in the metropolitan area. Hundreds of beautiful and costly wreaths were sent to the deceased residence in Princes Street. Five rooms of the house were filled with these tributes of sorrow. The floor of the front room in which the coffin lay was strewn with the wreaths, and the coffin itself was buried in them. Prominent amongst them, a huge cross of violets and snowdrops from the dead constable's comrades at Lehman Street Police Station. And the cortege left the house and made its way to Christchurch, Jamaica Street for the first part of the service. Um, led by the very same priest who had only five years earlier married Ernest and Ellen, and also the Bishop of Stepney. The memorial service at Christchurch was most impressive. Amongst those who took part, the Bishop of Stepney, who close to the coffin delivered a short address. What shall we say first, said the Bishop? Ah, that he died bravely at the post of duty, and then after a pause, yes, as bravely as any of the heroes and soldiers in South Africa. The Second Boer War was occurring at the same, at the same time. Following, following the hymn, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, sung by the choir and congregation, the procession left for Bow Cemetery. Outside the church, there were over 10,000 people. Immediately in front of the hearse, a mounted police patrol, whilst alongside the car were eight stalwart pallbearers, each carrying a truncheon and a brass wand. The dead constable was interred alongside police constable's barber, who fell through a skylight 
and Police Constable Pascoe, who was drowned whilst endeavouring to capture a man who was badly wanted by the police. Now, the very sadness here is that the widow, Ellen, and her age is speculative. Um, her own daughter claims that she was only 25, as she may very well have been, was preparing to take Ernest to bury him in the family plots in Bocking in Essex, when the police stepped in and said that they wanted a ceremonial funeral. Now, either in grief or support of this, we really don't know, but she agreed. And in doing so, in some ways, I mean, this is what we might say, this extraordinary ceremony for Ernest, was, we might say rather ironically, the very height of, of his career, because he is buried in Bowes Cemetery. Afterwards, Ellen and her four children, under four, moved back to Essex, to her family home with her mother in Bocking, and it seems from what I've managed to glean from everyone that he was literally erased from family history. Now, of course, as a speaker said yesterday, people didn't talk in those days. Well, my goodness, if we think now of the trauma, the well, inconceivable job of dealing with four children under four, where is their father, and the hideous way that father died, I suspect that great-grandmother um, chose to not say anything and essentially get on, get, get on with life. We can only speculate on it. But it does seem to me, um, I'm just going to read now a passage. This is my great-aunt Jessie's biography, dying in at 1889 in, um, in the early 90s. She was Ernest's second child, and she wrote it for the family in the last years of her life. Now, I think we have to sort of think here also, this is an old woman reminiscing, and she's endeavoring to write about her life, which is an extraordinarily successful life, um, as an indomitable female head teacher from a time in the 1920s when, of course, women never married, who travelled the world on passages on cargo ships and rode across Iceland on horseback in the 1920s. So she's not a woman to mess about, but she's a woman that's endeavouring to write for her family a rosy picture. I was born in 1898 in the reign of Victoria, and now her great-great-granddaughter is on the throne. I have lived in six reigns. I am a true cockney, as I was born within the sound of the Bow Bells. My father was in the Metropolitan Police Force. One evening in December 1900, he was on duty in the East End. He came upon a street brawl and intervened, trying to stop the fight and separate two women. So it's interesting to speculate on what she was told. A man standing by watching pulled out his knife and stabbed my father in the throat. He died almost instantly. He was only 26 years old. Well, we know that he was 32. Mother herself, only 25, was left a widow with four children under the age of four. Percy, three weeks, 11 months, grandfather. Jesse, two years, nine months, the writer of the biography. Annie, one year, eight months, who's 
daughter is still alive in Nottingham, and Elsie, six months. Elsie died at the age of 24 of what was simply styled at the time, a weak heart. Um, <clears throat> in those days, there were no widow's pensions and no family allowances for children. Today, my mother would have received thousands of pounds in compensation for a husband killed on duty. Now, I happen to know that she is most certainly wrong here in that the police force and, I understand, public subscription from the people of Stepney raised, and I've seen two figures, either £3,000 or £5,000, which in 1900 was a staggering amount of money. But she was taken back to, or she took the children back to her mother's home in Essex. And she goes on to say, my mother knew that her own mother's house was too small and her mother needed peace. When number 69 Church Street came vacant, my mother rented it and here we all settled down, leaving my grandmother in her house opposite to enjoy a little peace. By this time, my mother had been granted an allowance of one pound a week, and this was her only income. But she had tremendous courage, determination, and initiative. And above all, she had absolute devotion to her little family. So in this cottage, she provided a very happy childhood for all. Now, the children did well. Great-grandfather was a very successful businessman in agricultural um, machinery. Jessie went to the London University, got her degree and spent a life in teaching, being one of the first Montessori teachers. Annie opened a hotel, and of course Elsie died prematurely. Uh, I, I'm always rather taken, the little I know of Ellen, Ellen died in 1948, uh, going into hospital of a routine operation and not coming out of the, the anaesthetic. Um, from what I've gleaned again from uh, Ernest's granddaughter still still alive, a learned woman, I was fascinated, both sides of my family, the idea of working class families that self-educated, that read and played the piano and learnt music and played instruments. Um, and somehow with four children, she, we understand with good authority, she found time to read the complete works of Dickens and the complete works of Shakespeare. So I think that, in a sense, the house was a happy one. But I feel, uh, indeed, sort of a great sadness for Ernest that after all this, He's buried in Bow Cemetery. Um, this being his grave, it is a police grave bought for policemen who died on duty with no family to support them. Now, two police constables are already in the grave when he's put in as the third occupant. Now, when I first saw the grave in 1976, the police had cleaned it, restored it, planted flowers in it, and it was very, very clearly legible. Now, unfortunately, that part of the cemetery was designated a wildlife reserve. The vegetation grew and the stone was covered with ivies. When the, uh, what we might say, the direction, the instruction on, on wildlife and conservation changed, groundsmen pulled the ivy off the stone and rather sadly, it's taken the lettering with it. 
Um, now, my next project, besides endeavouring to find out what happened to Albert, um, and indeed, an awful lot of being sort of invited to speak here today. Ernest deserves better, and I now want to get in touch with the cemetery authorities and have some form of plaque attached to the stone. I'd like to have two put on it. I'd like to have one to great-grandfather clearly telling something of his story, but I'd also clearly also like to remember the other two men that are also in, 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 in the grave as, as well. So it's just let's sort of finish with the man himself. What we might say the extraordinarily ordinary extraordinary life of PC Ernest Thompson um, coming to the city for a better life and it being an incredibly short one. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. And that was David Thompson with The Tragic Life of PC Ernest Thompson. I would like to extend the warmest of thanks to Adam Wood, the editor and publisher of Ripperologist magazine, and Frog Moody of Casebook Classic Crime Club for allowing the recording and release of this landmark conference. A huge debt of gratitude is owed to Mark Ripper for overseeing the recording of all of the talks, and to the speakers themselves for granting their permission for making their contributions to the conference available for all of us to hear. As I said in my introduction, if you would like to become a subscriber to Ripperologist Magazine, the free bi-monthly journal of Jack the Ripper East End and Victorian Studies, send an email to contact at ripperologist.biz. For more information on the Casebook Classic Crime Club and to receive their free and also excellent magazine, go to timezonepublishing.com. Both publications also have their own Facebook page, so you can also find a lot of information on there. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find all of our roundtable talks, author interviews, and conference releases on Jack the Ripper and Victorian True Crime. The number of shows is now reaching 100, and that would never have been possible without the support of the Ripperologist community and you, our listeners. And so I thank you for your continued support, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.